Good afternoon. Welcome to the Piragaji in Action podcast. This is our fourth episode. We've recently launched this as part of the Piragaji project. You can uh, check out the project at our website, piragaji.org, and we'll be flashing some of those links up a little bit later. And um, so here's uh, the project is <clears throat> we we collaborate to build the No Longer Missing Guide to All Things Relevant to Peer Production and Peer Learning. And this is a video and audio podcast. And we we aim, with this podcast, we aim to provide a interactive space where participants in the audience can explore the philosophies, the concepts, contributors, and practical applications of pedagogy. And although it's informed by all the pedagogy contributors and the history of the project, the core crew for the podcast includes Joe Corneli, Charles Danoff, Lisa Snow McDonald, and uh, Joe Corneli, oh, Charlotte Pierce. <laughs> Who else? <clears throat> Who else, Joe? Um, well, it. today we're joined by Howard and Brian, so they are pretty core contributors to the Piragaji project. Um, so very nice to have them on the uh, podcast. Um, thanks for being here, guys. Um, and thanks, Charlotte. Uh, so yeah, so today the, uh, oh, by the way, it's audio and video. So for those who aren't seeing the slide, this is about uh, the collaborative process of creating books. And I was motivated by uh, Brian's new book, Academia Next. So there you go, Brian, a little bit of uh, free advertising. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, and I noticed just now before this, I've been reading the book, but I, I did a quick count. You thank 39, as I counted, individual people in the acknowledgments, including Howard. Okay. And Howard, through Howard and through all these other people, a wider network of contributors, you thank uh, the Future Trends Forum. And I, I don't know how many people are on that, but maybe this, the number is less important than the networked nature of that right um and i found that very interesting and, and howard i don't have the example specifically to hand from your books but you are well known for having a massive uh learning network so you know i don't know how many people you thank on that in the book but it doesn't really matter the specific numbers it's more like even though this just says brian alexander on the front cover it's clearly a group effort and i wanted to talk with you guys both about that now that's one of the themes and then the other theme is puragaji so howard convened the puragaji project which is a collaborative multi-author book. And I wondered if we could kind of get some insights from your experiences as authors in a, in a somewhat more traditional sense and, and learn about pedagogy. So yeah, maybe maybe we can understand the process of writing these books. So maybe if you don't mind going to, to Brian first and then we can branch to, to Howard, tell us a little bit about the book and the Future Trends Forum and how, how this book came to be. Sure. Uh Thank you very much, but my, my publisher and I thank you uh, for reading the book, um, and thank you for catching that in acknowledgments. Uh, not everybody did. Uh, I All of my work is socially based. Uh, everything I do, uh, I mediate through networks, and they are often technological networks, so I share work through, uh, through podcasts, through video, through blogging, through Twitter and LinkedIn and so on. Uh, it makes me smarter. It improves my work uh, consistently. And I go to a lot of trouble to try to facilitate and support these kind of networks and conversations. So you mentioned the Future Trends Forum. This is a weekly video conference discussion that's been going on for almost five years now. Uh, we meet with one or several brilliant guests and talk about the future of higher education. There's no, uh, 
presentation allowed. It's entirely discussion-based. Um, and it, now when you ask for numbers, we have uh, our email list has about 7,500 people. So it's a pretty hefty group. Each individual session has between 40 and 800 people. Um, and the conversations are fantastic. They are, as far as I can tell, unique. Uh, and uh, all archived on YouTube uh, for everyone to see. So those conversations, we, we've had lots of evidence from people who say that it improves their work. It counts as professional development. It constitutes learning and mental exercise. Uh, and for me, I, I just find I'm only one person. I have only one pair of eyes. So getting to hear from so many other people in so many fields, so many geographical areas, so many walks of life, uh, I think is fantastic. Now, to, to write this book, uh, the first part of it is a summary of trends that are reshaping higher education. And the basis for that is a monthly report that I've been publishing called the FTTE report. Uh, the most recent issue came out last night, actually. Uh, and again, that report is based in part on what I get contributed from people, again, around the world. Uh, people will share with me stories about anything from enrollment trends to augmented reality to financial stresses. And then everything I find, I, I push out and to various networks and ask people for feedback. You know, say, is this right? If I get something on, say, cooperation technologies, I'll email to Howard and say, what do you think? Is this nuts or is this a good idea? You know, if I get something fantastic on augmented reality, I'll ship it to some of my students who are just AR hounds and get their feedback and so on. So all of that research, all the publication, all of that conversation and feedback then led to the first part of the book. Um, so that's, that's a very long-winded way of saying that I exploit lots of my friends without paying them. It's, it's, and I'm sure they they enjoy the process, or they would not, you know, keep coming back. I've been, I think, I've been on one of the future transforms. It, it occurred to me that a common theme between you and How, Howard, and certainly this book, is the future. Howard, is, you know, is part of the Institute for the Future, and I wonder if this, you know, highly collaborative process is is sort of uniquely suitable for thinking about future trends or at least current trends. Um, Howard, do you think? Uh, uh, what Brian was saying, does that resonate with your process of writing the writing books or would do you have a different uh, a different take on it? I mean, probably it's somewhat similar, but what do you think of of key similarities and differences, if any, that you would you would highlight out of that? Well, I'll have to say that my my book writing process um, goes back to the olden days and and uh, predates uh, internet. So uh, it was a radical change. Uh, in my, my process when I got online, I, I spent, I guess, maybe the first 10 years of my writing career with a typewriter uh, and a telephone and a library card. And most of my time uh, just alone uh, doing research. And of course, uh, that in, in included calling people and, and interviewing them. But when I first got online on the well, and, and I, I wrote about this, uh, in my 1987 article on, on virtual community, um, it was almost instantaneously I recognized that, that I had this uh, online think tank to, to help me in, in, in ways that I wasn't able to collaborate uh, before. And, uh, and one of the things I learned was that, uh, of course, uh, you know, writers, writers want to tell the world, um, but we also want to make a living. So um, my audience really were editors, uh, 
for a long time. But then uh, when I started trying my ideas out with, with a, a group of people online, I, I, I found that uh, so many of them knew things that, that I didn't know. And that if, uh, if I just gave them uh, what I knew, uh, you know, prior to writing it in a, in a book that, that I would, would sell, um, that I, I, would, uh, I would get a, a 10 times reciprocation. I would always get more back from my online network, um, many of whom were people I had not yet met uh, face-to-face, some of whom I've, I, I never met. But it, it became clear to me that, that depending on how you used it, this ability to connect with networks online was a, a huge amplifier of my, my ability to, to do research and, and get feedback. And I definitely uh, worked on that for, for years, worked on it not, not so much in the, in the instrumental sense that it, it worked for me, but um, it's, it's fun and exciting. If you know, you're a writer, you're used to being alone. Uh, I, I wrote one of the first things that excited me about uh, Life Online was that it was uh, writing as a, a performing art and writing as a collaborative process. So I've, and you know, even the early days of Twitter, you saw a lot of people playing with this uh, collaborative uh, nature of people who didn't necessarily know each other coming together online around a particular topic. So the, the roots of collaboration really come from my, my participation uh, online with online networks. And, uh, you know, s- since then, I've, I've, I've learned a lot from, from teaching and from, you know, over the 10 years that I taught college students, I learned more and more to trust the students and, and to recognize that there has been since forever this built-in pi- uh, power hi- hierarchy that's not necessarily a knowledge hierarchy that the teacher knows and the, and the students don't. Um, once I started recognizing the, the students as, as co-learners, um, my teaching improved and, and their agency, their ability to take some responsibility for their learning and their, their happiness and their engagement with learning increased. And so that, that's all set the stage for pedagogy. Just, you know, if, if you trust your network, and you trust your your co-learners, it's it naturally becomes collaborative. Of course, there's only um, you know one author uh, to to most books, and there's only one teacher to most classes, and you can't uh, you can't really do away with that. But you you can definitely open it up and make it more of a collaborative enterprise. And I I'd say and I'll talk more about this when we talk about pedagogy. A lot of it has to do with letting go of your own ideas and your own control and, and opening up some some space for others. Uh, because if you have a fixed idea going into it and you are not able to unfix that idea, then your collaborators are not going to be collaborators. They're not going to be so interested in contributing when they see that you actually learn from and value their their contributions and, and ultimately acknowledge them to the degree that you, you can. Um, it, it it just multiplies your ability to think and, and communicate. That, you know that that occurs to me. That's interesting. Again, even going back to the kind of say traditional process of writing a book, where an author is regarded as a very lonely person because they've got to sit by themselves with a pen or a 
a typewriter and you know write all, alone all the time. I think that's still the impression of uh, what you would hear as a description of a novelist. Maybe I don't know how accurate it is for novel writing, but even so, you'll, novelists and so forth end up often having editors, whether or not they thank them in the, the in the book. So I wonder if we could just kind of focus in this in this question. Charlotte popped up for a second there, um, telling about the process of bringing the book to life. So maybe Howard, if you think about some of those early books you wrote kind of pre-internet and, and or Brian, if you focus in on just your relationship with your editor and, and talk about that, you know, that kind of traditional relationship, because we got the future trends forum, it's all very futuristic, we're thinking about network things and all this stuff. But what about that, that core traditional uh, editorial process? I don't know. And you already mentioned your editor, uh, Brian, do you want to give them a shout out here on the podcast and, and say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I'll, I'll be very, very quick. And, uh, uh... And I and then I have to get out of the way because Howard has such a such a vastly more impressive and extensive uh, publication history that I'm I'm like here's my little my little pebble and now I'll yield to the mountain. But the um, uh, it, it's varied from uh, from publisher to publisher. Uh, I've had very hands off editors who are just um, you know just want me to turn in the uh, um, uh, manuscript um, and then my current editor uh, Greg Britton at Johns Hopkins uh, full shout out to him he's launched a line of critical university studies uh, books which is now I think for my money the the best series of writing on higher education out there from any publisher um, Johns Hopkins is the oldest scholarly publisher in the US so it's a real treat to work with them but Greg is just incredibly supportive he and his team are very friendly uh, they go out of their way to help advance the book and to answer my persnickety questions. Um, it's just a real treat uh, working with them. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm always conscious as as a writer that I want to show them uh, what I've done, um, and I at the same time I don't want to overwhelm them. <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, you know make them uh, my my writing partners and such. So um, I'm I'm very grateful to them for uh, for all of their help. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I think Howard does, has worked with some of the big names in the in the publishing world, um, both pre and and post internet. So, Howard, do you want to tell some about those experiences working with with publishers? You know, I, I just I have to start out by saying that the editors that I learned from, who were really masters at at making writing better, were. Um, Richard Nielsen and James Donnelly at, at, at Whole Earth Review. Um, they extensively not only line edited my writing, but but showed me why. And uh, I think you, you have to understand that the role of the editor in trade publishing has changed dramatically, particularly since around 2008 when the, when the financial meltdown happened. But, but going back long before that, when I... When I first uh, started selling uh, trade books, I could go to uh, Knopf, uh, Random House, Ballantine, Bantam, Dell. Uh, gee, there's a bunch of other ones I've forgotten. Th those are all Bertelsmann. So now uh, Bertelsmann, News Corp, and Disney are 99% of publishing. And publishing used to be this kind of, uh, you know, gentlemanly, uh, uh, industry in which uh, you know people who had their own incomes um, were privileged to to work with writers and a lot of legendary editors did now uh, a lot of editors are uh, 
they're really marketers in, in large corporations. And the editors who work with writers nowadays are pretty much reserved for the, for the, the big names. And in, in my experience, I had a really mixed experience with, with the virtual uh, community book. Um, you know, the, the large end of the funnel, when I was writing about what was going on online and most people didn't have any knowledge mm -hmm. of in the, uh, you know, early in the um, late 1980s or early 1990s, there was Usenet and BBSs and, and MUDs um, happening all over the world. And I compiled all this information and I, I, I wrote a, a draft that, that put it all in. And uh, I got the, uh, the draft back and just pages and pages and pages were, were marked uh, just with slashes through the entire page and remarks such as, um, I hate this. Uh, I really took to my bed. Uh, you know, I just, uh, my life was over uh, for a couple of days. And then, um, you know, one day my, my daughter, who was quite young at that time, said, uh, Mommy, Daddy is laughing at his computer again. And that just, that gave me the beginning of a thread in which I I rewrote it and he liked it the second time. Um, and the rest of the editing was pretty minor. I had an editor who was kind of tough, but I, I think I, I didn't give him su such a, a load of, of garbage at the beginning when I when I did uh, the virtual community. And uh, his name was uh, Bob Asahina. And actually when I, um, when I wrote Smart Mobs, I, I was it Smart Mobs? I, I hired him to to help me uh, with it. Nowadays, if you are a trade book writer, um, you need to have some money uh, of your own. A, to hire a publicist because uh, trade books, uh, uh, trade publishers, and, and, and certainly very few, if, if any, um, university presses are going to publicize your, your, your book the way book publicists for big uh, publishers use, used to do. Um, and because you're not going to get an editor who's really going to pay attention to you unless you're a big deal. So you've got to spend some money hiring an editor to help you. And, and those are generally my experience with, with, with Bob was, was much more collaborative. So I'd say if you, you find a good editor um, who may be tough, uh, but uh, helps you understand what direction you were going and what direction you need to go, you're you're very you're very fortunate. That's yeah. So it's very that's really interesting. I'd be interested to know uh, to learn a bit more about your process of rewriting, taking it from the the one that made everyone unhappy to the one that made everyone quite happy and as a landmark uh, publication. That's a very interesting uh, process. Um, so maybe we can touch on that a little bit more. But the the other question we wanted to ask today is yeah, what did you learn from the writing and publishing process that could possibly inform the next edition of the Pure Gaji Handbook. And for those with video, I've got a great picture of cats looking at a fishbowl here. So you guys are the, the fishbowl to uh, feed back to us, the hungry cats, to learn your uh, learn your knowledge that we can put into the Pure Gaji Handbook. But on, the, on that topic of, of editors, I think in a way we've kind of um, crowdsourced the editing process. We turned to the Metacog, which another Howard Rheingold University spinoff group, and we did a book group. And they read through that. And we put actually copied the book into a Google Doc and so they were putting comments into the into the chapter. And this is the third edition, mind you, not the first edition. We didn't think of that until 2016 to do a book group to read through it. But we sort of crowdsourced the editorial 
role. Um, and something that I, I really regret is I've never managed to get the book in front of students, which I think given that it's pedagogy and, and how much we've talked about students as co-learners, it'd be great someday to have this pedagogy handbook as a textbook where the students also get to rewrite it during the during the course. But since you both are involved with, with teaching and I saw uh, Graziano popped up a question about how not to puzzle students and help them act as co-learners. I think that's that's relevant to the uh, issue of, of you know not overwhelming your editor with a bunch of nonsense. So um, maybe we can modify this question about uh, what can we learn from your processes about these books to learn in the pedagogy handbook, just to kind of think about co-learning. Um, and, and Brian, as your book is about academia, you know, where academia is at, could be at in the next 10 or 15 years. Um, you have this, this chapter on the triumph of open uh, practices, pedagogy mm -hmm. on such things. So as, as futurists and educators and writers, it's a lot to ask in 10 minutes left, but uh, kind of, yeah, what, what do you think about the, we're pretty keen to get a fourth edition of the pedagogy handbook. I've even <clears throat> drafted a proposal for the fifth edition at one point. So, you know, where do you see these kinds of open writing processes going and, and how can we learn from your experiences either with Future Trends Forum or personal learning networks, teaching classrooms. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I will try to back off and, and let you just, just discuss it as much as you wish for the next nine minutes or so. I'd love to hear from Howard first. Well, you know, in, in retrospect, um, a, a book I read about leadership many years ago um, really gave me the, the, the clue. Um, I don't remember much about the book, except the first line was the first duty of a, a leader is to define reality. And I think that's true in um, a, a collaborative uh, effort, but and, and also true in, in the classroom. In the, in the classroom, in the, in the beginning, I didn't know really what I was doing as a, a teacher, although I was uh, confident in my knowledge of the subject matter. And when I told that, when I finally had the courage to tell my students that I, I was um, uh, learning as well, then they helped me understand what worked and what didn't. And sometimes the magic happened. Sometimes what I call co-learning happened. Um, I didn't really know exactly any kind of recipe for making it happen. But after it did, I learned that, that when I started a course and told the students that we could have something different from your normal students, listen, uh, teacher, talks, students have discussion for the uh, uh, as a performance that we could work together on not only the subject matter, but on Im improving the, the teaching, then, then that I can't guarantee that that will happen, but I can guarantee you that it has happened, that, that if you, you, you set the, the your expectations um, at the beginning as a leader, um, and then part two is step back, give them a little room to, to, to push back on it, to um, help you understand what they think you're saying, and give up some of your, your authority. Again, with, with pedagogy, I, I started with an idea, and as you might remember, uh, part of that was that I, I gave a, a lecture at Berkeley, and they expected me to work with their, their students and their faculty face-to-face -face afterwards, and, and I brought a laptop into those meetings and opened it to Blackboard Collaborate, and I used Twitter and Facebook to invite others from around the world to participate. You know, a couple of months later, all of the, the, uh, the faculty and graduate students had dropped out, and a community of people I had not known from around the world, you know, in, 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 including Joe um, at the beginning and Charlotte uh, eventually, that, that uh, 
uh, I had an idea of what it ought to be, and I laid out that idea. But the more we began to collaborate, the more really I was challenged to give up what I thought it would be to leave room for for them. Um, and at one one point, I wanted to step away entirely, and and I think it was Joe, was either Joe or Charlie, said, "No, you 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 have to continue to exert some kind of leadership on that," which I did for a little while. But eventually, I really stepped back from the process, and the community took over. But I think. What was required was what educators called scaffolding of me setting it up and then me showing how this is my idea and I'm going to let go of it. What's your idea? So I, I want to yield the, the rest of the time to Brian. Thank you. I mean, I think that it's it's really interesting to again think about how, you know, because you mentioned the experience at Berkeley, which is one of these clearly foundational moments, but this kind of part that the students backed off. And and so and yet in, in uh, Brian's book, we have this kind of idea that open practices will be triumphant, potentially, it's a scenario. So, you know, I, I would love to go back to Berkeley for the, it'll be the 10th anniversary of Puragaji in a couple of years and say, hey, let's do it again as a, as a seminar, as a course or something like that. But do you think they'll be open to that in, in two years? And what would it take? Or Johns Hopkins University, say, for example, or someplace in Vermont, you know, who, who inside of academia, if anyone is going to be open to this? And you've envisioned a scenario in which the whole sector becomes open to this kind of way of thinking. So I wonder what you think about that. That's really interesting. You know what? If if Brian would co-teach it with me, then um, I, I would consider uh, uh, doing that. So you know, let's maybe it will happen. Who knows? Uh, but if it does, well, you know, we can go back to Saturday, December fifth at uh, ten twenty-six Pacific when when you planted the the seed <laughs> of the idea. I'd oh. love, I'd love that. Um, thank you, Howard, um, and thank you for the seed. Um, well, one one thing is just quickly the the uh, scenario you're referring to is one possible scenario if certain conditions come to pass. And so basically this is if open education resources, open teaching, as well as open access and scholarly publication, uh, they all become the majority in their respective fields. Uh, and so this is possible. And there are a lot of ways this could happen. And there are other ways it might not happen. Uh, but it's one of I mean, the second part of my book is a series of scenarios about different ways universities could unfold. Uh, you, you, it's, this is a great question to explore. Uh, I have to say, I've just been nodding and agreeing and giving thumbs up to everything Howard's been saying about the practice of actually teaching this way, uh, how the instructor has to get rid of some authority and get rid of some ego, and that's very difficult uh, for a lot of people for various reasons. Um, but I, I'm also, I wanted to grab your question about the future of this. Uh, on the one hand, we know just from the history of technology that humans are social creatures and we love using technology for social purposes we've always done this I mean, you can think about tape trading for example you know people you know a radio hobby um uh clubs i mean all kinds of examples of this and we've seen this of course with social media um and uh and what we used to be called web 2.0 in fact web 1.0 as well um but but there is some interesting uh, drags on that desire right now. I mean, one is the way that some of the social media giants operate, uh, which is in many ways uh, antisocial or at least not very conducive to some forms of sociology. Uh, there's also what some named the tech lash, the widespread criticism of Silicon Valley um, that is uh, pretty widespread and right now is getting a you know an interesting mutation because of COVID. Um, and I, I, I so I'd be cautious of that. 
Uh, and, and part of this is also the fear of abuse online, which is a longstanding fear. It dates back to the origins of, of uh, Usenet. Uh, people have talked about this for a long time. I'm always frustrated when people talk about it as a new thing. It's not. But what is new is the scale of troll armies and, and the speed and uh, extended abuse. Um, it may be that that begins to drop away as uh, Trump exits the scene and so forth. But um, I, I want to put all those out there as cautions. Uh, because getting people to use social technologies is not necessarily easy. I, I've had brilliant students of mine say they didn't want to use Reddit because they thought Reddit was basically contaminated by the alt-right. Uh, I point out, you know, we'll just, we'll just have our own separate board, no problem, and it took a while to get them to that point. Um, so that's that scaffolding again. Um, but I do think otherwise we're we're definitely headed towards more and more sociality, more social connections, um, especially across uh, nations and also across different demographics. Uh, I hope. I mean, I, I think that's a, a great long-term arc of history, as uh, uh, Robert Wright found in his book Non-Zero, which Howard turned me on to. Um, and I, I really hope we can do that. In, in education, though, we still have to get over the huge power of the expert. Uh, I mean, we are credentialed. Uh, our credentials are terminal. They're very expensive credentials. Uh, we are also uh, granted a lot of authority in terms of credentialing. Uh, and as economies get difficult, uh, this gives these experts even more power. Uh, and it's very difficult to get around that. And sometimes we protect these experts with good reasons. Uh, women, uh, for example, tend to get um, negative, more negative reactions on uh, professor evaluations than men. Um, you know, you could think about women who are more likely to get various forms of online abuse than men. Um, so some of those protections are very, very viable and important to have. Um, but I, I, I hope we can move towards an open future. Um, we have to work. Well, towards, no. On that note, maybe now is a good time to invite uh, two women and one uh, man to uh, show their faces on the on the screen for at least a few seconds. Uh, Charlotte, Lisa, Charlie, come on in. Uh, just say hi. Yeah, to, we we had some questions too. If you have time. But yeah, we could we could have a as we said we might go a little bit longer for for a few extra questions. So but I, just, I love this discussion. This is amazing. Charlie, are you there? You wanted me to put you in. Sure. Hey, there's Charlie. Yeah. This, this reminds me of the excitement and, and just all the boiling ideas that came up when I was taking your course, Howard, and you know how this just got me started on this huge, pedagogy is now a huge part of my life. And I it informs all my other uh, activities too. Like, I just don't like to do anything without collaborating with someone. <laughs> so thank you, yeah. Yeah, so I saw there were some nice, uh, nice uh, questions. Did you, if if you had time in the in the soundproof booth to to extract some questions, you want to maybe read them out? I did. Uh, did I get it? Um, there's some responses too. Oh, Graziano Mino, he's in Italy. The editor role should be explained at the beginnings? Question mark. The editor role. You mean at the explain to whom? I'm not sure, but. Maybe I think maybe he's referring to how it took us it took us four years to realize it'd be a good idea to have a reading group in addition to the writing group for Puragaji. So we didn't quite realize that. But yeah, when we're entering yeah. the fourth edition, yeah. we could we could definitely imagine a reading group um, perhaps in lieu of a in mm -hmm. lieu of a formal course, maybe maybe we could work together to set something like that up. That'd be interesting. Lisa, any comments from California? You're muted, I think. Sorry about that. 
Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So sorry, I forgot I had done that. Um, I was just wondering to what extent you thought the the challenges we have are built into larger so how we approach larger sociological and economic problems um, outside of just like academic and those sorts of relationships. Does that make sense? And the question goes to both of you. <laughs> did, did my did my brief comments about uh, online abuse um, and uh, politics did that point in the direction of your question? Um, actually, it's been a, a, a question I've had for quite a while because pedagogy extends outside the academic environment, and mm -hmm. I more from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. but it seems as though our thinking may be embedded in such a certain way that predisposes us to think of this hierarchical way and this individualistic way of acting hmm. versus a pure pedagogical or collaborative way of engaging. And sure. So that's, I guess I was just kind of wondering if you, if you, do you see that or what your take on that might be? Just, just really quickly, and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll yield the floor. Um, there's a debate in, uh, in future studies now about um, what neoliberalism is and, and where it is going forward. So, you know, the idea that the, we should see the market as the uh, arbiter of all things, uh, and as individuals, we should think of ourselves first and foremost as uh, consumers and as producers. Uh, we are the CEO of oneself. I am my own boss, that kind of thing. We're all entrepreneurs. Uh, we're all isolated or atomized uh, or each individual's on the giant labor market. Um, and that, that's a very popular view. It's got by part, it's had bipartisan support since the 1990s. It's kind of the default setting of Western civilization, especially in the US. Um, and uh, the argument is that this is basically where we are and this will last for some time. The argument against that is that uh, usually in generational terms, you can think of people who uh, were born after the Cold War and, sin and therefore didn't come up with the full acculturation of socialism equals evil, communism equals the devil. Um, and you know, if you, if you, and you've seen this in the Democratic primaries over the past two uh, elections, you know, when you see younger supporters cheering on Bernie Sanders and older people being terrified, um, you know, the, so the argument is that we might be headed in a new direction of a greater form of social thinking, communitarian thinking, um, and that we might see that evolve over time. Um, so I, I would imagine if that second argument is true, then we might see a, a change in how we think of ourselves um, you know, in, into a less individualistic way, a less atomized way, a less lonely way, uh, and towards a more social way. Well, clearly this is going to be another episode of of uh, pedagogy in action. Um, do you want to say something, Joe, about our, our pedagogy action review and, and invite people to join us? After yeah, they like to? so we're going to have a little bit of an after party. And this, uh, Charlotte, if you flash up, flash up the screen, those of anyone who's watching uh, is welcome to come on that. Uh, Graziana's talking about a welcome. So uh, you'd be welcome to come to the after party and join whoever is there. Uh, clearly, the guests are invited, but not required to come along to that. Um, we kind of like to learn both from the production standpoint and just also what did we learn in the episode uh, as we go. So, you know, this is a peer produced thing. It's been a team effort. Um, this one went very, very wonderfully and smoothly. Thank you so much to Charlie, especially for uh, making that go so well and to our great guests. They obviously know what they're doing. This may not be the first time they've done this kind of thing before. So that was helpful. 
yeah, if you if you want to come to the after party of the event, uh, it's on meet.jitsi slash puragaji. And yeah, uh, we do the same thing after every episode, but we don't want to make the live stream go too long. So that's why we do the um, after party separately. So um, Great. I guess with that, maybe we should close it. But thank you so much, uh, Howard and Brian. It's been lovely having you. Um, and I hope we'll have many chances. Can I say one more thing? Yes, please. Uh, I just want to acknowledge um, that, that when when a writer starts out on, on any project or, or a scholar, the first thing you do is a, a, a review to see who else has been thinking about this. And when I looked at peer learning, um, what I found was Joe and, and uh, Charles uh, and their work on pedagogy. And, and, and forgive me, I just, pedagogy sounded snappier to me. So I changed that. <laughs> I do want to acknowledge that they were working on this before I thought about it. <laughs> it's safe to say that without the change to pedagogy, though, we wouldn't be here having this conversation today. So thank you, Howard, for that. That's, that's You're here. And yeah. as we tell everyone, pedagogy is everywhere. We didn't discover it. It's out that's there. True. In all of our lives, in the minute you get up in the morning, you're doing it. So yep. that's my wonderful. Opinion. Okay. Right. And we'll be doing it again very soon. See you then. Bye. Thanks Bye. for hosting us. Be safe, yeah, everyone. See ya. Bye.